Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Well, looks like today we hit on one of the forgotten battles of World War II, the Aleutian Islands Campaign. If you'll recall your U.S. geography, the Aleutian Islands are that long chain of islands in the northern Pacific Ocean that stretch westward from the Alaskan Peninsula. Also recall that during World War II, Alaska, like Hawaii, was a U.S. territory. Both would become states in 1959. So let's see what happened. So first off, why the Aleutians? Are they that strategically important? Well, both the U.S. and Japan thought so. The United States knew the islands were strategically valuable. They could be used to control trade routes in the northern Pacific. On top of this, if these islands were to fall to Japan, the Japanese might use them to carry out full-scale bombing raids on mainland Alaska, and even the west coast of the lower 48. Japan saw control of the Aleutian Islands as a way to prevent a possible U.S. attack across the northern Pacific. In the spring of 1942, Japanese Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, the brilliant naval strategist, began to devise an intricate plan to draw out the U.S. Pacific Fleet in order to destroy them. He regarded the American carriers as the principal threat to Japan's overall Pacific campaign. He knew he must somehow draw them out to fight. At first, he pondered another attack on Pearl Harbor. He knew for sure this would bring the American carriers out, but he decided against this course of action because since the first raid on Pearl, the land-based air power on the Hawaiian Islands had increased and he felt that would make another attack far too risky. Instead, he selected Midway Atoll, two tiny islands about 1,300 miles away from Oahu. His thinking was that while Midway wasn't all that important in the larger scheme of Japan's intentions, he felt it was important to the Americans and was sure that they'd vigorously defend it. Yamamoto began to plan his attack on Midway. As part of this, he planned a diversionary attack on the Aleutian Islands at the same time as the main attack, in the hopes of drawing ships away from Midway. Now, there are some historians who claim that the Aleutian attack was done to protect Japan's northern flank, and not just as a diversion. I don't know which of these claims are true, and it really doesn't matter, because either way, the battle plans played out the same. Yamamoto put Vice Admiral Bashiro Hosogaya, in charge of the Japanese Northern Area Fleet. At his disposal were two light aircraft carriers. These were smaller than the full-sized fleet carriers. The particular ones Hosogaya had held up to 42 warplanes each. He also had five cruisers, 12 destroyers, six subs, and four troop transports. Hosogaya's orders were to first launch an airstrike on the U.S. naval facility at Dutch Harbor on Unalaska Island. After that, troops were to land on Adak Island, 
which was 480 miles to the west, and destroy whatever American troops and facilities were there. Adak was actually undefended, but the Japanese didn't know that at the time. Then these troops would reboard their transports and serve as reserve for landings on Kiska and then Attu. Kiska was about 240 miles west of Adak, and Attu was 180 miles west of Kiska. It's actually the westernmost island in the Aleutian chain. Now here's something to keep in mind. United States naval intelligence had broken the Japanese naval codes by the beginning of 1942. So by the third week of May, Admiral Chester Nimitz, commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, knew of Yamamoto's plans for Midway and the Aleutian invasion. Furthermore, he knew the strength of both Yamamoto and Hosogaya's fleets, and that they planned to commence operations on the 1st of June or shortly thereafter. Thus, he made his plans to counter these. At this time, here's what the U.S. military had in Alaska. There were about 45,000 men in total, with 13,000 stationed at Fort Randall at Cold Bay. This was at the tip of the Alaskan Peninsula. There were also two bases in the Aleutian Islands. The naval base at Dutch Harbor on Unalaska, which was 200 miles to the west of Cold Bay, and the newly built Fort Glen Army Airfield on Umnak, which was 70 miles further west from Dutch. Now, 45,000 men seems like a lot, but if you subtract the Air Force personnel, you'd be left with about 2,300 men at those three bases. Most were infantry, although there was a contingent of Army engineers who had constructed Fort Glen. The Army Air Force's 11th Air Force was stationed at Elmendorf Airfield in Anchorage. It was made up of 10 of the mighty B-17 Flying Fortresses and 34 B-18 Bolo medium bombers. The Bolo was, by this time, rather outdated and had been relegated to mainly anti-submarine patrols and transport duties. There were also 95 P-40 Warhawk fighters divided between Fort Randall at Cold Bay and Fort Glen at Umnek. Naval forces in the area were made up of Task Force 8, commanded by Rear Admiral Robert Theobald. It was made up of five cruisers, 13 destroyers, three tankers, and six submarines. With plans of the Japanese attack known, the 11th Air Force sent out reconnaissance flights to locate the Japanese fleet. Once they found it, the plan was to attack it with bombers and focus on sinking the two carriers. Once the threat of enemy planes was removed, Theobald's Task Force 8 would engage the rest of the fleet and destroy it. On the afternoon of June 2nd, a patrol plane spotted the Japanese fleet 800 miles southwest of Dutch Harbor, and the bombers of the 11th Air Force were placed on alert. Unfortunately, bad weather set in later that day and the Japanese fleet was lost from sight. Using the poor weather to their advantage, the Japanese fleet made a two-day bombing attack on Dutch Harbor on June 3rd and 4th, 1942. On the 3rd, a flight of Nakajima torpedo bombers, nicknamed Kate by the U.S., made their attack, but only about half the Japanese planes made it to their target. Many became lost in the fog and darkness, and either crashed into the sea 
or returned to their carriers. Those who did make it to Dutch Harbor came under intense anti-aircraft fire and then found themselves attacked by the P-40 fighters from Fort Glenn. Surprised by such a fierce American response, the Cates quickly released their torpedoes and beat a hasty retreat. Because of this, very little damage was done on June 3rd. On June 4th, the Japanese Kate torpedo bombers returned. They were better organized and prepared to meet stiff resistance. Because of this, their attack found much more success, and by the end of the afternoon, the oil storage tanks were burning, the hospital was partly destroyed, and a beached barrack ship was damaged. American pilots were able to again locate the Japanese fleet, but the bombers that were scrambled to go after the carriers ran into more bad weather, and again, contact with the fleet was lost. The upside to the bad weather was that it did cause the Japanese to cancel their plans to invade Adak Island, which, as I said earlier, was undefended. On June 6th, the Japanese invaded and occupied Kiska, and did the same to Attu on June 7th. News of these occupations shocked the American public, because this was the first time the continental United States, counting the islands, had been invaded since the British had done so during the War of 1812. The invading forces met little resistance from the local Aleuts. The U.S. had offered to evacuate the Aleuts from Attu in May, but the Attuan Aleut chief had refused. Life for the Aleuts under Japanese occupation remained largely unchanged until September of 1942. It was then that Japan seemed to shift their Aleutian strategy, and they removed the Aleuts from Attu and took them to Hokkaido, Japan, and placed them in an internment camp. This move by the Japanese became the justification for the United States to forcibly evacuate the Aleuts from other islands and place them in internment camps on the Alaskan Panhandle. As a response to this, the U.S. established an airbase on Adak Island in August and began bombing Japanese positions on Kiska. Ships and subs also began to patrol the area because Kiska Harbor was the main base for Japanese ships. A number of Japanese ships were sunk there and in the surrounding waters. While this was going on around Kiska, a cruiser and a destroyer force under the command of Rear Admiral Charles McMorris was sent to eliminate the Japanese supply convoys to the Aleutians. On the 26th of March, 1943, they met a Japanese resupply fleet off the Komondorsky Islands. These would be the Russian islands west of the Aleutians, right off the Kamchatka Peninsula. The resulting naval battle of the Komondorsky Islands saw one American cruiser and two destroyers damaged, with the loss of seven sailors. The Japanese had two cruisers damaged, with 14 dead and 26 wounded. While this small engagement didn't produce a conclusive winner, it did force the Japanese to abandon trying to supply the Aleutians by surface ships. From this point onward, only subs would be used to carry supplies. On May 11, 1943, American forces began Operation Landcrab to take back the island of Attu. The invasion force was made up of the 17th and 32nd Infantry Regiments from the 7th Infantry Division, 
as well as the first Alaskan combat intelligence platoon, who were nicknamed Kastner's Cutthroats. These guys were an interesting bunch, so give me a minute here to say a bit more about them. The first Alaskan combat intelligence platoon was the brainchild of Colonel Lawrence Kastner, an Army intelligence officer in the Alaskan Defense Command. He put together a group of 65 men who were skilled at surviving in the Alaskan wilderness. These included native Aleuts and Eskimos, as well as prospectors, hunters, and trappers. This background and familiarity with the terrain made them ideal scouts. They would be led in the field by Captain Robert Thompson, who had been a football star at Montana State before the war, and was himself used to harsh terrain and temperatures. And by the way, it was the press who dubbed them Kastner's Cutthroats. They preferred to simply call themselves the Alaska Scouts. Anyway, Operation Landcrab took place with the American troops carrying out unchallenged landings on the beaches of Etu. The Japanese defenders were led by Colonel Yasuyo Yamasaki. His strategy was to give up the beaches and dig in on the high ground far from shore. This resulted in the Americans having to attack uphill against heavily fortified positions. Add to this the poor weather, and you get brutal combat that cost the United States 3,829 casualties. Included were 549 killed in action, 1,148 wounded, 1,200 cold-related injuries, mainly frostbite, 614 deaths from disease, and 318 deaths from Japanese booby traps and or friendly fire. Ouch, that's a costly campaign. After a little over two weeks of fighting, May 29, 1943, saw the remaining Japanese forces stage perhaps the largest bonsai charge of World War II when they attacked near what has become known as Massacre Bay. Colonel Yamasaki himself led the charge. The Americans were caught by surprise, and the Japanese drove so deep into the American lines that they engaged rear echelon units. Brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat ensued until the Japanese force was virtually exterminated. Only 28 Japanese survived to be taken prisoner, none of them officers. Later on, American burial teams counted 2,351 Japanese dead and it's assumed that many more bodies had been buried by bombardment during the battle. But despite the heavy carnage, Etu was back in American hands. On August 15, 1943, a massive invasion force of over 34,000 American and Canadian soldiers, including Kastner's cutthroats, landed on Kiska to retake the island. Upon landing, they found the island abandoned. Using the cover of fog, the Japanese had evacuated all their troops on July 28th, a little over two weeks previously. Despite this fact, the U.S. and Canadian forces did suffer 313 casualties, mainly from Japanese booby traps, mines, and disease. So, the Aleutian Islands campaign came to a close. And that begs the question, what of the aftermath? Well, plans were on the drawing board for an attack on northern Japan out of the Aleutians, but they never came to fruition. 
the U.S. did fly over 1,500 sorties against the Japanese-held Kuril Islands, which diverted 500 Japanese fighters to their defense and away from the home islands. On top of this, during the campaign, the Americans were able to recover an almost completely intact Mitsubishi Zero fighter that had crash-landed on the island of Akatan. The Americans were able to repair it, test-fly it, and use it to gain valuable insight into its capabilities and how to best combat them. Now, as I said earlier, the initial Japanese attacks on the Aleutians ran concurrent with their attack on Midway, and the Battle of Midway would prove to be the turning point in the Pacific War. But talking about that, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends and check out some of my other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again real soon.